I want to talk to you some more this morning about grace, if that's okay. <clears throat> if you open your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 3. There's a verse there that I, I want to uh, point to and then just expand on. Verse 18, the, the context, if you read the, the whole epistle or at least the third chapter, you see the context is um, basically the end times and the kinds of things that go on in the last days and what kind of people Christians should be and what kind of attitude they must exhibit in the face of end-time events. And Paul says in verse 17 that, since we already know this, we are to be on our guard so that we may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from our secure position. And then in verse 18 he says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And what I want to talk to you this morning about is growing in grace. Now we've been talking about grace for several weeks. We've been contrasting grace with legalism. We've been looking at the necessity for grace in the home and grace in the church. We've been looking at grace from a lot of different perspectives. And as we learn about grace... As we learn to see it and recognize it, and we learn to contrast that in those environments where grace does not exist, and we understand what it means to live a life devoid of grace. In other words, we're trying to gain a sense of acceptance uh, by being good enough, by performing. And then we come to know Jesus, and we know God's acceptance because of what Jesus has done, His performance on our behalf then we must know and we must learn how to actually grow in grace as the scriptures say. So that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. But before we get to that, I want to deal first <clears throat> for a few moments with a, an issue, something that passes for grace but is not the real thing. Uh, it's phony, it's fake, it's not real, it's spurious, it's what we would call cheap grace. Now, this is not a wide problem in the church, but there are periodically pockets of it. And whenever you talk about grace, whenever you teach on grace, you always have to address this particular issue because there are people who begin to look and understand grace in this very erroneous way. And so I want to describe to you and help you understand what real grace is all about in that sense and contrast it with cheap grace. We call it cheap grace because it does not take sin seriously, nor does it take the law of God seriously. <clears throat> it's a so-called kind of grace that says uh, it matters not much really how you behave. You can sin all you like and everything will be all right. And that's really an attitude that some people take. They operate from an extreme position. There are basically two extremes when you talk about salvation. One extreme is that uh, you lose your salvation. You can lose it over a drop of a hat. And so lots of people are constantly uh, fearful of this and they're constantly being resaved and resaved and resaved and resaved. They're constantly praying that prayer of salvation. At the way end of the other uh, extreme is the person who says, once saved, always saved, no matter what. And therefore, it matters not what they do. And I want to talk about this for a moment, this other extreme, and that point of view, that it matters not how you behave, when in fact it matters much how you behave. Now, if you understand grace rightly, if you really have a grasp of, of the grace of God truly, you would be tempted to abuse it, <laughs> if you understand it rightly. Because God does forgive, doesn't he? But if grace has really touched your life, if it's really marked your life, 
if it is really changing you and it is created in you a, a, a great sense of seriousness about sin and about God's law and about obeying God, then though you might be tempted to abuse the grace, you won't abuse it. Am I making sense? And so, you know, if there's anybody in the auditorium this morning, and certainly there are people in any large setting who really have a misconception about grace and about license. Grace is not license. It's not permissiveness. God's not saying, all right, now I've saved you, and it matters not what you do because you can't get unsaved. That's not the issue. The issue is, how do I respond to grace, and how has grace marked my life, and how do I know that, in fact, I am a Christian? I would submit to you that we know that we're saved by the fact that we take sin seriously. Before you became a Christian, did you take sin seriously? Yes, you did. You loved it. (laughs) I did. I wallowed in it. I took it very seriously, but not from the perspective we're talking about. Before you became a Christian, did you take God's law seriously? No. Maybe you thought of it occasionally, but you did not take it seriously like you do today. A person who is a Christian, truly born again, takes on God's concerns, and God is gravely concerned with sin and the effects of sin, and he is gravely concerned with his law, that his law be obeyed. If you're a parent, are you not concerned with the behavior of children? Greatly concerned. And aren't you greatly concerned that your children obey you? Surely. The principle holds true for our Heavenly Father also. And so we take sin seriously and we take God's law seriously. If sin is trivial, then guess what else will be trivial? Grace. We'll treat it lightly. We'll take it for granted. We will abuse it if we take sin lightly. If we take sin seriously, if it is a matter of utmost seriousness to us, then so also will grace. We will cherish and wonder at God's grace and His changing in our lives. If grace is grace, truly, then it can and it must produce a genuine heart change once it is answered by a genuine and wholehearted faith. God's laid it on the table. He's pouring out His grace. And that grace is received by a genuine and wholehearted faith. And once that grace is engaged on that basis, it produces a change in our life powerful change in our life. We only come, in fact, to God's grace because we have seen the urgency of His law. Isn't it urgent that God's law be kept? Absolutely. I mean, how much lawlessness is there in the world? Don't we long for people to come to the Lord and obey Him and do what's right? Is there not an urgency for God's law? Surely. And it's only when we see the urgency of his law, and it's only when we see the awfulness of our sin, by contrast, when the sudden reality of of what we ought to be and what we really are, when we're confronted by that great performance gap, when we're shaken to the core, it's only then we go, oh my! And every one of us have had that kind of experience in our life, when we're just shaken. All of a sudden, reality comes crashing in on us. And that's the very thing that drives us to the grace of God. We won't come to His grace unless we are affected that way. Unless we long for release from the very sins that are destroying our life. Destroying our families, destroying our society and our culture. Unless we see the reality of that, unless we see each one, our own individual part in that process, we will not come to God's grace. We've got to be shaken into it. And then you begin to see the reality of these things, and you take seriously like you never have sin and law, God's law. Now, some people would also say along these lines, well, 
But the Bible says that I'm no longer under law, I'm under grace. Again, they gravely misinterpret Romans chapter 6, verse 14. That passage doesn't free you from the law in the sense of obeying God. Not at all. Grace does not do away with the law. It does away with legalism. And again, legalism is performing to be accepted by God. Keeping the standards just to keep Him liking us. No, grace doesn't do away with the law. Rather, it's through grace that the law is actually fulfilled. You and I can't obey God except for His grace, by His empowering, by His enabling. And so I want you to understand there's a difference between what we would call cheap grace and real grace. You say, God enables me, God empowers me to keep His law? Yes, that's what His grace does. His grace not only saves us, but His grace sanctifies us. It transforms us. And His grace ultimately will glorify us. That's His gracious power. In Romans chapter 7, verse 6, Paul says it. He says, we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. In other words, we're not just fulfilling a bunch of rules and regulations. We don't just have a list. We're not, we're not operating on the basis of a list mentality. But rather, there's a new dynamic in, 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 in activity in our life, and that's the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you're born again. You have the Spirit of God living in you. And it's that Holy Spirit, the Spirit of grace, who energizes us. You see, when, when you've got the Spirit of God living in you, and you're being filled with the Holy Spirit... Paul says in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, he says, be being kept filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at your life. You've got these two tanks, if I can use this analogy. You've got these tanks. We call them grace tanks. Be being kept filled with the Holy Spirit. Keep those grace tanks topped off. And if those grace tanks are being topped off, guess what? You're walking in the Spirit. Walking in the power of the Spirit. Walking in the grace of the Spirit. And guess what? You fulfill the law. You walk in the new way of the Spirit. You, by very nature, keep the things of God. You do the things of God. It's not like you have to, you have to work hard to be a Christian. It's not like you have to work hard to obey God. It comes as a supernatural result of God working in your life. Am I making sense? Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 8, and verse 4. He says that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not walk according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. And so once again, the righteous requirements of the law will be fully met in us as we what? Walk according to the Spirit. And that means nothing more than having our grace tanks topped off continuously, be being filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of grace. And we're going to talk about how to do that. But I want you to understand that a Christian, truly a born-again Christian, is one who does not look at grace as if it disqualifies the law, does away with the law. No, rather a Christian is one who, who sees and understands and is experiencing the power of God in his or her life to, in fact, fulfill the law. The law still matters. God still commands us to obey him, doesn't he? Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. Because the mark of a person who loves is one who is drawn to, who is filled with, and so forth. I love what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Great passage, gives me great hope. Because it speaks about the same things we've been just talking about in Romans. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Notice he doesn't say work for it. It's work it out. With fear and trembling. He's saying, be aware because God is at work in you. And he's at work in you to do what? He's at work in you so that you can want to, so that you can will, you can want to do these things, and you can in fact do them. His pleasure, the things of His pleasure, His will, His law. So God is doing it all. In Peter, Peter writes in uh, 
2 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 3. His divine power has given us most things that we need for life and godliness. No, it's given us all things. It's, it's not exclusionary. God's power has given us all things that we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. You see, God's already done it all. God didn't just come and say, look, I'm just going to crack the door open a little bit. I'll get you, let you have a little foothold in the kingdom. And then you've got to push it all the rest of the way open to get in. There's far too many Christians who are living their life that way. Rather than coming to the banqueting table when it's already all laid out, it's already there. He just says, just come and get it. Just come and get it. And enjoy. And be blessed. So understand the difference. Real grace changes you. Real grace changes you. You're saved by grace through faith. You're saved by grace through faith. You are transformed by that same grace. And you are ultimately glorified by that same grace. And it's cheap grace, ineffective grace, phony grace, that would take God's law and treat it trivially and would treat sin trivially. When in fact, God does not view those things that way at all. Amen? Amen. All right. Now let's talk about growing in, in the real kind of grace. How do I top off those grace tanks? How do I go about it? What are some practical ways that I can engage to ensure the fact that my grace tanks are topped off, that I can know God's power in my life, and that my life can be transformed from glory to glory into the image of Christ? All right? You ready? All right, here we go. Hold on. The first thing you want to do is you've got to ask yourself this question. How am I realizing my own personal need for a deeper experience of God's grace? Everybody's got to ask themselves that question. How am I realizing my own personal need for a deeper experience of God's grace? Is the more that I can learn about God's grace? Do I really understand it all? Am I appropriating it? How can I appropriate it and live in it? Am I a good person or am I a gracious person? Is there a difference? Would you say, was it, would there be a difference between being a good person and being a gracious person? I think there's a big difference, qualitative difference. When we say I'm a good person, we're speaking basically about morality, aren't we? I don't do anything wrong. But graciousness has much more to do with than just morality. It's a whole life attitude. Gracious. I want to be a more gracious person. I want to be a more gracious man. I want to be a more gracious husband. I want to be a more gracious father. I want to be a more gracious friend. I want to be a more gracious pastor. I want to be a more gracious church leader. I want to be a more gracious servant. I want to be more gracious. But if I'm to be more gracious, I can't just sit back and theorize about grace. I can't just talk about it. I've got to do something about it. And the three things that are needed if I am to grow in grace and become more gracious are these. One, I must expose myself to grace. I must expose myself to it. That means I've got to expose myself to not only its message, but also to its influence in my life. And secondly, I must be willing to appropriate God's grace in my life. Make it mine. Take it in. And thirdly, I must be ready and willing to express it. That means to pass it on. So let's talk about those three things, and I want you to understand that all three go on simultaneously, contemporaneously with each other. It's not just, they're not nice, neat categories. You all separate out, though we do it on paper, but it's a process, and it's a process that goes on throughout our entire life, every day, over and over and over. We're constantly filling up those tanks, constantly topping off the tanks, constantly topping off the tanks, and this is how we do it. 
Just like someone says, well, how do I get gas in my car? Well, you drive to the gas station, you get out of your car, you open up the gas tank, you take the thing off the stand, you stick it in, you give the guy your money, you pull a little button, and gas goes into your tank. You see, there's a way in which we fill up our tanks. And this is how it happens. The first thing we want to do is expose ourselves to grace. And the very first place we go to expose ourselves to grace is to Jesus. We want to expose ourselves to Jesus. For John says in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, that Jesus was full of grace and truth. So I want to go to somebody who's full of grace. Not someone who has no grace. I want to go to somebody who's full of grace and expose myself to that person. Where do I go to expose myself to Jesus? Read the red. (laughs) Read the red. Somebody said, what's he mean by that? Read the red. Get a Bible with red letters, Jesus' words, all in red. Read it, read it, read it, read it, read it, read it. Notice his gracious way with sinners. One of my favorite passages is Luke chapter 19. Jesus engaging Zacchaeus. I love how he engages Mary Magdalene. A woman, an adulterous woman, a prostitute, seven demons cast out of her. How about the woman caught in adultery over in John chapter 8? Jesus turns to her and he says, where are your accusers? She says, they're gone. I have none. He says, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. Oh, boy. I mean, she's, she's standing there expecting that they're going to stone her any minute. He says, neither do I accuse you. Go sin no more. Wow. You think that impacted her life? I think so. Impacts my life every time I read it. I go, yes, yes. Expose ourselves to Jesus. Watch him. Listen to him. Saturate our minds with the wonder of who he is and what he does. One who has come not to be served, but rather to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus. We expose ourselves to his life. Secondly, we expose ourselves to scripture in general. And uh, basically, this means that we read the Bible. And I promise you, if you read the Bible every day, just a part of the Bible every day, it's going to impact your life powerfully. But if you go beyond just reading and you begin to study it, the impact will be even greater. We have what we call eye gates and ear gates into our soul, if you will. But there's also a heart gate. You take the word in, you you read out loud to yourself, you read it, you take it into your eye gate, you take it into your ear gate, and you'll let it permeate your heart gate. So you hide God's word in your heart. It's far more than just memorizing it. Far more than meditating on it. It's hiding it in your heart so that it begins to be alive in you. And it begins to affect you and change you. God's Word will do that. It's like food for the soul. And so we want to expose ourselves to Scripture, to the Bible. And when we read it, we read it in the light of grace. We read it with lenses of grace, not lenses of legalism. This is a, this is a love letter from God. This is a book that he's written to us to tell us how it all works so it all makes sense, so we'll know him and understand him, understand ourselves and our problems and the solutions and so forth. He's saying, read my book. And as we read his book, we take it in, it begins to make 
all the difference in the world to us. And so we expose ourselves to Jesus. We expose ourselves to Scripture in general. We read it through lenses of grace, not lenses of legalism. It's not just a bunch of rules. This is life. It's food. Food for my soul. And thirdly, we expose ourselves to relationships with other Christians. It's wonderful to be in a loving Christian family. And if you're a Christian family, boy, what a joy to be able to share with your spouse and your children and your parents and so forth the love of Christ. We need Christian families. We need to be exposing ourselves in Christian families. We need to be open to one another in our Christian families. But beyond that, we need also Christian friends, close Christian friends. We need one-on-one relationships where we can talk about things, where we can pray for one another, we can encourage one another. We must have Christian friends. But even beyond that, uh, it's vital for us to be in a small group of Christians. Have a, a small circle of people, Christian people, we meet with on a regular basis. Because just being in a one-on-one relationship is not sufficient to challenge our life and to expand our life and to meet the needs of our life. We must be part of a group, a body. And so a small group is essential to be with on a regular basis. And even beyond that, we must be experiencing grace, the grace of God, even in a large group. That's what we gather together and worship in our large groups. Part of that, excuse me, is because we experience the grace of God in a totally different environment. I mean, I look around, I see all the sizes, shapes, colors. It's a wonder to me, God's grace in a large group. I'm amazed. People from every walk of life. And I see God's grace manifested in all your lives, and I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I need to be in a large group because just in a small group of people, I can become ingrown. The small group can be ingrown. And the small group needs to be in a larger group because the larger group draws the small group out of itself. And every one of us, and and it works its way down. If you're not even in a small group and you're isolated by yourself, moving into a small group is essential because it requires that you be drawn out of yourself. Am I making sense? And the large group gives back to the small group. Out of its resources, it feeds back into the small group and then back on down into those individual relationships and back into the family. So there's this wonderful dynamic of relationship and and the various levels of relationship do interact. And it's a wonder to me how they do it. But I'm convinced that we experience God's grace at all of those levels and all of those four levels are essential. Now, if you, if you find yourself in a small group, or even in a large group, or if you're all alone and you don't have any friends, you don't have anybody to share with, don't be negative and condemning, and don't reject the group, and don't say, oh, bummer, no one likes me, no, I have no friends, no one accepts me. Pray! God, bring me a friend! Bring me a friend! If that describes you and you're sitting here and you're all alone and you have nobody in your life to share with and you feel unaccepted and unacceptable and so forth, guess what? There's somebody in this room just for you. That's why I have everybody get up and greet one another. I'm hoping you'll bump into that person. And that's happened. That's happened. These are called divine appointments. I'm not joking. This is God is about the business of bringing people together so that they can know His grace in the context of those relationships as they work out those relationships. But don't complain, but rather pray, look around, get involved, and say, Lord, lead me to somebody that I can be a friend to and who can be a friend to me. Lead me to an environment where I can share and they can share with me. Don't just sit there and complain. Be negative. If we want to grow, if we want to know the power of God's grace in our life, we must be willing to be open. Right? If we're not willing to be open, you've just short-circuited the process right there in terms of being able uh, to move on to the next step in terms of appropriating God's grace. So we expose ourselves to the Lord, to Jesus. We expose ourselves to the Scriptures, and we expose ourselves to other Christians in those areas of relationship. 
Now we move on to appropriating God's grace. And again, first thing is to do is to recognize the need, the continual need to appropriate, not only just expose, but now appropriate God's grace. It's not a once-for-all thing. You don't just kind of go and you get filled up forever and that's it and you can just kind of run on these tanks forever. No, you've got to always be exposing yourself, always be appropriating, but you'll not do it unless, first of all, you recognize, see the need to do it. With me? All right. Now, some people, some people see no need for grace. These people are absolutely ignorant of their need for grace. Their lives are reasonably satisfied. They can cope basically with most of their problems. They have no trouble in that area. They're relatively well-liked. They have no great need for forgiveness, acceptance, those kinds of things. They've pretty much got it together. And so they're ignorant of their need of God's grace. And hence, they're not going to be good candidates for what? Appropriating God's grace. I would suggest that individual, look, you probably need to go and examine God's law a little bit more closely and see the performance gap. See where you really are. Because it's only with that kind of impetus are you going to be very, very aware of your need for grace in your life. There's a second group of people. These people are very, very complacent. They take grace for granted. They're at the other end of the extreme, if you will. They say, oh, of course God is gracious. So what's new? No need to get all excited about it. I've had people come and talk to me and say, you know what? When are we going to finish this series on grace? Move on to something a little bit more exciting. So, okay, we'll move on to tithing. You see, again, if, if a person is complacent about grace, thinking they know all there is to know, in effect, then I would suggest that individual, you know, you need to go back to God's law and you need to confront that performance gap. Let God's law confront you in your life. Take, once again, sin seriously. And and once again, take God's law seriously. There's a third type of person. is the prideful individual. This person knows of the need, unlike the other two, but can't accept the fact that he or she falls short. They can't accept the fact that they fall short. Not me. They're so busy looking at other people, thinking they got it all together, they forgot to look at themselves. I mean, they know the need, continual need for grace. But in their own life, they don't need it. They're unwilling to look at it. I would suggest that all of us, to some degree or another, fall in that third category. I know I do. I know I do. There are times when, especially when you teach on this stuff, when you teach on this stuff, when you study it, you can become very theoretical. You wax eloquent. You're always looking at other people. But you've got to remind yourself, hey, wait a minute, I'm in the same boat as everybody else. I've got to apply this to my life. I need God's grace in my life. And so we've got to recognize the need. Secondly, if we're to appropriate God's grace, we must be willing to confess our sins. We must be willing to confess our sins. In Psalm 66, verse 18, and I don't, I confess to you, I fully, I don't fully understand the dynamic of this verse. But in Psalm 66, verse 18, the psalmist says, if I regard sin in my heart, God will not hear my prayers. If I harbor sin, if I willingly hold sin, if I live with sin in my life, willingly, knowingly, unrepentantly, God will not hear my prayers. And I don't fully understand all of that. But that's what he says. So we go from Psalm 66, verse 18, clear over to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. And God says to us there... Well, if you'll confess your sin to me, if you just admit where you are, he says, I'll forgive you and I'll cleanse you of all unrighteousness. 
You ever been desperately in need of a shower? <laughs> I mean, really desperately in need. There have been a couple of occasions in my life. One that I remember most poignantly, it was before I'd become a Christian. Years and years ago, I was traveling around the world, and I was in Eastern Europe, and I was 11 days without a bath or a shower. And my hair was all, you know, it gets greasy and oily and... You just itch all over, and you just, you know, your mind can work on you. You start scratching, and, and we were smelly and dirty and grimy, and oh, it was just miserable. We we're in the mountains in Yugoslavia, and, and I'll never forget thinking, man, I can hardly wait to get to a shower. I would have even taken a bath. <laughs> I'm not a bath person. But I remember finally getting to a shower. And it was cold, the shower, there's no hot water. But I remember feeling, oh, it is so good to be clean, to be washed clean of all of the filth and all of the grime and all of the stuff. It was so nice to be clean. That's what God says. He says, I'll not only forgive you, I'll cleanse you. You know how nice it is to be washed to be clean. It's the same, same idea. And so if we'll confess our sins, God says, I'm faithful, I'm just, I'll forgive of all unrighteousness. What parent is there who wouldn't want their child, when that child sins, to come willingly of their own volition and confess their sin? Don't we want our children to be open? Don't we want our children to view us as really uh, an environment of acceptance and, and, and grace and mercy that they can come and they can say, Mom, Dad, I, I sinned today. Sure. But if they don't view us that way, then chances of them coming willingly on their own, by their own choices are slim to none. And slim just left town. In the same way with God. God wants us to view him in that, in that way so that we will come to him willingly. So that we'll not be sitting down here, sitting on this sin, sitting on this sin, harboring this sin, afraid to go to him, insecure to go to him, knowing we can go and say, God, God, help me. Forgive me. And so we've got to be willing to confess our sins. James says much the same thing in his epistle in chapter 5, verse 16. James says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You know what he's talking about? That you may be healed. It's by God's grace that we're healed. And healing, he's talking about a broad spectrum of healing, healing in every manner. What, what, what area of life needs to be healed? If I'm harboring sin in my life, if I'm unwilling to confess it, if I'm unwilling to be open... How can I expect to know God's healing in my life? He says, come and let me heal you. And by that confession, we are in fact appropriating His healing grace in our life. His restoring grace in our life. His sanctifying grace, His transforming grace in our life. And when we do confess, it must be sincere, genuine. It can't be feigned, it can't be fake, we can't just be performing again. And it's got to be real. God, I am sorry. I am truly sorry. The kind of sorrow that leads to genuine repentance that brings salvation or healing. And thirdly, to um, make sure that I'm appropriating God's grace, it's important for me to constantly reaffirm or remind myself that God is gracious. Sometimes we just project right back onto God, even though we, we understand He's gracious up here. In our hearts, sometimes we project right back onto him the motives that we experience in the world, the ways of the world. Is the world gracious? No. You go back to work tomorrow, and you go back into a world that is far from gracious. You go back into the same old motive of what? Performing. 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 Trying to get people's approval. Trying to get people's acceptance. Trying to avoid their rejection. Trying to avoid their condemnation. Trying to do all you can to be acceptable. And living in that world day after day after day, it's vital that we stop and we say, wait a minute, God is not like that. 
so we don't project the world's ways onto him and look at him as if we must also back be back performing for him in order to be acceptable. Because it's easy to slip back into that mode of thinking. I do it. I do it. I find myself performing for God just not even thinking about it. In a way that says, if I fail, oh man. And I just jump all over myself, condemn myself, whip myself. And that's not at all what God desires. So I've got to remind, I've got to remind myself, wait a minute, God is gracious. God is gracious and mercifully understands I'm just dust. And when I fall short, he just wants me to come to him, get, get it all cleaned up, get it all cleared up. He's not waiting to smack me with his club. <laughs> Fourthly, in appropriating God's grace, I must also remember to live in conscious fellowship with him. Practice his presence moment by moment. God's already come down from heaven. He already lives in me. Every place I go, guess who goes with me? God. Wherever I am, God's with me. Sometimes I forget that. God is with me. He listens to every word I say. He sees everything I see. He observes every activity of my life. He's with me. He's with me. I don't pray, God, come down. Come be with me. Be with me. I'm already with you. Calm down. <laughs> I'm already with you. Oh, that's right. That's right. He says, I promised I'd never leave you or forsake you. I'll be with you to the end of the age. Oh, okay, okay. So I've got to be aware of his presence, practicing his presence in my life moment by moment. And I do that by talking to him. Talking to him, remembering he's with me. I talk to God. I talk to God every day. I talk to him in the shower. I talk to him when I'm laying on my bed. I talk to him when am I getting up. Am I going around every place? I talk, I talk when I'm driving. I talk to him. I'm laying on my bed at night. I talk to him. I talk to him all the time. My wife's talking to me. I talk to him. <laughs> I do because I'm not a good listener. It's like God help me, help me to be really engaging here. When people talk to me, I talk to him. I said, God help me. When, when people talk to me after the service, I get lots of people coming and talk to me. That's wonderful. That's what I'm here for. But sometimes I'm real distracted and there's people rushing back and forth and people saying hi and reaching in and wanting to say so. And I've got to really engage that person who's talking to me. So I'm saying, God help me to engage this person. So no matter where I am, I'm talking to God. I'm talking to God. And I'm talking to him as my father and as my friend. I want my son to talk to me. I want my son to talk to me. But invariably, when I go to him and I say, talk to me. <laughs> you know, that doesn't work. Yeah. It's real artificial. You know, I said, well, how's your day been? Well, it's been okay, Dad. How'd you do with Mom? Oh, I did okay. Can we go outside now? No, I want to talk. What do you want to talk about? Well, let's just talk about stuff. That's, that's, doesn't work. You know what I found that works? I'll find him when he's all by himself. If I'm at home and he's at home at the same time, and we're, we both have some free time, like the other day, he was up in his room, and he was just reading. And so I went up and I just kind of laid on his bed. Didn't say anything. Just said, can I come be with you? He said, sure, Dad. He was just ignoring me. <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't say anything. I just lay in there watching him, you know, loving him and going, oh, this is good, this is great. <laughs> and then all of a sudden he puts the book down. He comes over to me. And if he knew I was telling you this, he would be really embarrassed. He snuggled up to me and he'd just start talking to me. I mean, he's talking to me, he's talking to me, he's talking to me, and I'm going, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he just talked about everything under the sun. It was great. It was great. Amen. See, God just wants us to kind of snuggle up to him and talk to him. And just talk to him. He doesn't bug us. He says, talk to me. 
He's always here. He's always here. He's always here. He's our Heavenly Father. And I talk to him as my friend, not my enemy. God spoke of Abraham. He said, Abraham is my friend. And we are Abraham's seed. And hence, we are also God's friend. And you know, he has talked to us far more than he ever talked to Abraham. (laughs) He's revealed much more. He says, shall I hide anything from my friend Abraham? No, he has not hidden anything from us. He wants us to know and understand his will as much as we're willing. So I talk to him. Not only do I talk to him, I listen to him. I try to learn to listen to him. I listen to him as he speaks to me as I read this book. There are verses that jump off the page at me. Invariably, they go, whoa. God's talking to me. God's talking to me. God talks to me generally. Even if something doesn't jump off the page, I'm just reading. I'm going, hmm, that's wonderful. Ooh, that's great. I better reread that. I just can't remember what I read. (laughs) You do that too? (laughs) But God talks to me through his word. This is the predominant place where God talks to me. There are a couple other places. There's another place. Is that still small voice we talk about? You have to be real careful when you hear voices or when you have impressions or promptings because there are other voices. There are other impressing, impressing beings. And so you've got to be discerning when you, when you sense something, someone is talking to you. You've got to always go back to this book and say, hmm, is it here? Is what I heard over there, does it contradict what I know from here? Or if you're not too sure, then you've got to go to some other more mature, biblically literate Christians and say, you know, I've been thinking some things, and I'm wondering if God's talking to me, and and then you share thus and such with them and say, help me. Is this God or is this somebody else? You've got to discern. Because there are those competing voices, and the Bible does say there's wisdom in much counsel. So don't be afraid to get some counsel. And there's a third way in which God talks to us. He sends other people to us. Sometimes they are knowledgeable vessels and sometimes don't even know God's using them. You ever had that happen? Someone comes in and just talking to you and they're just talking and talking and all of a sudden you're going, wow, God's speaking to me. He's going, I mean, rich stuff. This other person's looking and they say, are you all right? Oh, yeah. They don't have a clue what's going on. They're kind of a, you know, a messenger, but they don't know they're a messenger. Then there's other people who come and they say, I have a word for you. <laughs> okay. And you, you know, stiffen up, you get ready for it. It's, all, <laughs> it's always a good practice, by the way, to prepare yourself, obviously, and, and, and think kind of this way. You know, there may be a kernel of truth in what this person is saying. You know, again, you have to use discernment. It's kind of like eating watermelon. You eat the the good part and you spit the seeds out, you know. Because we are still yet imperfect vessels, messengers. And so we, we speak to him, we learn to listen to him, we practice his presence, we learn to love him and obey him and serve him, and we find ourselves sharing in his compassion for the lost and for the hurting. It's all grace. And lastly, we now move to that element of expressing the grace of God. We're exposing ourselves. We're appropriating His grace. Now we come to the point where we express His grace. And this indeed is the most demanding aspect of all. This is where we pass it on. Here we come to the proof of all the things we say we believe. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is the point where the reality of our faith is actually put to the test. Am I really a gracious person? Has God really touched my life? Am I different? Or am I just same old, same old, same old, just like everybody else? And this is critical. For if grace is really grace, and it has truly touched my life, I have received Christ then I ought to be different. And I ought to be growing in that grace. And that difference ought to become more and more and more and more visible. More and more and more palpable. More and more real. 
If Christ has not made a difference in my life, I'm wasting my time. I'm wasting my time. Has grace made such a difference in my heart that it shows in the way I live and it shows in the way I treat other people? Has it really? If the grace of God has truly touched me, it will find expression in the way I act and in the way I talk. Of necessity, it will find expression. Why? Because it's God's grace. God is supernaturally changing me. I'm not making this happen. God's doing it. And if he's touching my life, if he's changing my heart, it's going to find expression out of my life. Supernaturally. It's God doing it. If God's grace is in fact touching and changing my life, I will be a much more accepting person than I've ever been. Accepting of people I never accepted before. Putting away my biases, my prejudices, my negative attitudes towards other people. Much less condemning, much less rejecting, much less needing to put down that person who puts me down. Isn't there something in us that just wants to get somebody back? They say something unkind. You just want to say, well, well. You don't have it together either, you know. <laughs> but if, if my grace tanks are being filled up, guess what? I don't have a need to do that. Because there's no deficit. There's no emptiness. There's just grace flowing out of me. Did Jesus put people down? No. Why? He was full of grace. And from the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> he said, but yeah, but that was Jesus. <laughs> it can be us also. More and more and more substantially. And it's not something you've got to wrestle down to the ground. It's something that just evidences itself in your life as your grace tanks are filled will be people who will be much more forgiving, forgiving than ever before. Forgiving not just once, not just twice, not just seven times, but 70 times seven. You say, oh, 70 times seven. How many times must I forgive that person? See, if you're asking that question, that's a red flag. You need to go back to what? The performance gap, draw, driven to God's grace, get your grace tanks filled again. The very fact that you ask that question is a signal that you're not full of grace. You'll be full of forgiveness. If God's grace is indeed changing and touching your life, you will be a giving person. Giving of your encouragement. Do you know that it's one of the hardest things in the world to genuinely encourage another person? Encourage. That doesn't mean just to be sympathetic. Encourage. We don't naturally encourage people. Why? Because we don't want to see other people get ahead, ahead of us. And if we encourage them, they're going to get ahead of us. It's okay as long as they're behind us. Maybe up even, but not ahead. But to encourage others to go ahead? Are we teaching our kids? Are we training and encouraging each other to always be last? Or to be first? We have a whole society that's, that's immersed in competition. Be first, be first, be first, be first. And Jesus said what? The first will be last. But the last will be first. Do you see? And so, if we're being touched and changed by God's grace, we're going to be encouraging others. No, no, you go ahead. You be first. Let me encourage you. Go ahead. You have the best seat. We encourage others, and it won't be a difficult trial for us. We'll be willing to give encouragement, give our witness, give our money, give our concern, give our time, give our love, give our very selves. And guess what? That giving will be without reservation. It will be without hesitation. You won't have to think. It'll just come naturally. It'll just be there. 
Have you ever looked at giving people and you're just in amazement? You go, how can that person be so giving? He's marvel at that. I do. I'm not a giving person by nature. I'm very selfish. And yet I want to be a much more giving person. And I want to be a giving person without hesitation. I want to be a much more giving person without the need of recognition of my giving. Oh, that's a good one, isn't it? I don't want to be longing for people to say, Oh, you gave so much. I mean, it's nice to have people say that, but I don't want to need people to say that. Do you understand the difference? If grace is touching my life, I will be a much more giving person. Jesus gave himself freely for us so that we might freely give ourselves to others. It's the bottom line. It's the bottom line. So, I leave you with this question. Is grace changing your life? Is grace changing your life? Is grace changing your life? Are you becoming a more gracious person? The Apostle Paul said farewell to the Ephesian elders. Luke records it in Acts chapter 20, verse 32. Paul says this, and I commend you with this same address. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I commit you to God and to the word of his grace that you may be built up. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word which reveals it. Thank you for your spirit who makes it real to us. Thank you for the hope that we have that, Lord, we can be different, more different each day. Keep us mindful, Lord, of our need to be full of grace to have these grace tanks topped off. We love you this morning, and we thank you for the privilege of being in your church, part of your family. Lord, I pray for those this morning who don't know your grace. I pray for those, Lord, this morning who are still entrapped in a prison of sin and foolishness whose lives are being destroyed. I pray and ask you, God, to evidence yourself to them. Turn their hearts towards you that they may receive Jesus as their Savior as we have. They may come to a saving knowledge of Jesus and they may know your grace. Help them, O God. And I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing before we dismiss one more song.